Today we're going to be in the book of Matthew, where it's mostly going to be out of chapter 5, but we're going to go in a little bit into chapter 4 to set the, the stage for what's going on. So I'll read the text that we're going to go from in chapter 5, and then we will go back a little bit and talk about chapter 4. And when he saw the multitude, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which suffer persecution for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed shall ye be when men revile you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So Jesus had just called the last of the four disciples. And as we go back into chapter 4, we'll start in verse 24. Actually, we'll go into 23. So Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And his fame spread abroad through all Syria, and they brought him unto all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and them that were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes out of Galilee, and Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and far and from beyond Jordan. So this is where we're trying to sit, and he's basically went on a preaching tour, and now he is coming in and there's a multitude that's following him. He's called his disciples. His ministry is just getting started. And he saw this multitude. He went up into a mountain and when he was set, his disciples came to him. So we've already set the stage for what this is looking like. Jesus is coming in. He's called his disciples to him. There's a multitude that's following him. So the disciples would be those that are committed to Christ, the ones that he called into his ministry. The multitudes are maybe not as committed. They're kind of more curious. They've seen healings. They've seen a lot of stuff that they can't really explain. So I think they're coming more out of curiosity to see what's going to happen next. The mountain that Jesus come to is not a holy place. It was just a common mountain. It's said to be northwest of Capernaum with a magnificent view of the Sea of Galilee. And it's probably nothing more than a couple of rocks and some grass that's adorning the mountainside. There's a church there now. It's called the Church of the Beatitudes. And where Jesus spoke, there was not a luxurious pulpit like this one. There wasn't a grand church building or an ornately decorated sanctuary. It was merely just a plain mountain. And from this, we're going to take our first lesson 
from this section of Scripture that the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be brought into every venue we can find for it. Whether it be a jewel-encrusted tabernacle like the Crystal Cathedral, the tomb of Jesus Christ himself, a rock next to a bonfire in 1500 Scotland like Alexander Peden, an open field like George Whitfield, who the Lord graced George Whitfield's voice where he could be heard clearly in these open fields for over two miles. It might be a table saw in a pole barn, a, st a step stool in Glasgow, a bingo caller's booth in a rundown hall, or with a cherished loved one on a urine-soaked piece of furniture, preaching your guts out as they battle the effects of withdrawal. Jesus, the holiest man ever, didn't go to the holy Mount Zion, but to a normal, everyday mountain. The people did not come to the gospel. Jesus Christ brought the gospel to them. In Jewish tradition, the teacher would sit. And here in scripture, we see that Jesus sits down and he has the disciples come to him. He had set out to teach his disciples, but the multitude wasn't roped off or prohibited from attending. Jesus allowed them to come in. He allowed them to sit. He allowed them to listen and learn from the greatest biblical teacher and theologian that ever walked this earth. To these people, he preached a life-changing power of a life devoted to God. In our day, Christianity is really designed to moderate the passions and affections of our minds and to regulate the whole course of our conversations. So with the multitude on the mountain, Jesus had to raise his voice so that they could all hear him, well above normal conversation levels. This is going to be the longest discourse that we're given in all of Scripture of the actual words of Christ. It goes two chapters long in Scripture, and it's affectionately known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins this sermon with the blessings, or Beatitudes, to grab their attention. Because mankind is always interested in how they can be blessed. Being blessed in today's society looks a bit different to the world. Being blessed in the world involves a stack of money, all the things you would ever want, good food, bottles of fine wine, a good standing in the world. But where does that gospel encouragement come for those who are poor? If it's the great and expensive things of the world that make us blessed, we must, whether rich or poor, be able to see that true blessings come from the spiritual side of our existence and not just from the worldly side. This takes all that the world has to offer away and evens the playing field between rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. If one is to ever stand within heaven's gates, they must first stand outside of those gates here on earth upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. We can see in the book of Malachi that the Old Testament had ended 450 years prior with a curse. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with cursing. And that is the final verse of the Old Testament. But the Gospels, the very first book, as Jesus starts his ministry, he doesn't start it with a curse, but rather 
it begins with blessings. And each of these blessings has a double intention. One, to show who they are that are to be esteemed among the brethren. And two, to show us where true happiness truly lies. Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is not having a poor spirit, one that is sinful in all its ways, but rather it's a spirit that's content with the things of the spirit. They don't need all the fancy allures of the world, but rather are content with what God has granted them. It may be amazing wealth, it may be comfort, it may be just getting by, or it may be abject poverty, but wherever they find themselves, they know. They know that it's God that has placed them there, and they are thankful. They don't look down upon others for what they don't have, or look up to others for what they do have. They know we are nothing without the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, we're nothing more than sinners in the hands of a God, angry at sin and ready to punish that sin. The poor in spirit will always be humble in knowing that daily they will need God's grace. The free and unmerited love and favor of God through whom all blessings flow, especially the blessings of the cross that brought about reconciliation between God and man through the blood of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. It's the poor in spirit that will find their rest in Christ, knowing that it is through Christ alone that their blessings come. To these awarded the kingdom of heaven. It is prepared for them. The haughty spirits upon this earth go away with the earth. Those humble, mild, and yielding souls who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who walk the walk of a sinner saved by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. Walking in humbleness, they shall obtain the kingdom of heaven, a place where we shall glorify God and worship Him forever. Amen. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you ask, how can one who mourns be blessed? The mourning that Jesus described here isn't mourning over a lost possession or a lost loved one. It isn't a mourning over lost money or a lost opportunity. It's a mourning, a grieving and lamentation over our own personal sin, knowing that by sinning we have separated ourselves from God with the only way to be reconciled to God being through Jesus Christ. In our prayer rooms, in our prayer closets, we grieve over our transgressions. We know we've transgressed God and in sorrow we repent of our sin. Not repenting in sorrow of the punishment now due us, as one would in a legalistic repentance, but rather real penitence. In deep sorrow for our offenses committed that was a dishonor to God, a violation of his holy ordinances, and a form of ingratitude toward the one who saved our souls. This repentance is soon followed by amendment of life, trying to rid one's life of that sin through the power of God working in our lives, converting from a life of sin to a life of holiness, trying to be like Christ in our daily walk, living a life of holiness. They may also weep over the sins of others, looking on others with compassion, 
weeping over those perishing souls and weeping over them as Christ wept over Jerusalem. To those who weep and mourn over their own sin and the sins of others, there will be comfort. Here on earth, the Holy Spirit will come to bring this comfort and assist with this amendment of life. We may see the comfort of the Holy Spirit as He works upon those we mourn over. And certainly, in heaven, our tears over sin shall be rewarded with an eternal life rich in God's grace and mercy, allowing those who have sinned against Him numerous times to be reconciled through the blood of Jesus. It is in heaven where we shall be eternally comforted as God wipes away all of our tears, where there shall be no sadness nor tear-dimmed eyes. Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? The meek are those who are gentle to their fellow man. They quietly and wholly submit themselves to God. They can be provoked without being inflamed by it and flying off the handle. They often remain silent or return a soft answer. They are the ones who remain cool while others will get red hot. They are the ones that through their meekness do not let the things of this world control their temperament at the risk of damaging their souls through sinful outbursts and comments, but rather they're in control and remain temperate. They would rather forgive 70 times 7 than exact revenge for one injustice against them. The meek have comfortable undisturbed enjoyment of themselves, their friends, and their God. As Matthew Henry penned, they are fit to live and they are fit to die. They will live to the glory of God and are able to pass from this life without issue to reside in that glory forever. It is these people who shall inherit the earth because they trust so much in God. They can see the blessings of this world in a soft reply a cheek turned, or a drink of water given. They shall inherit the blessings of both heaven and earth and be in comfort with both. This shall be their portion. When we act out and are not meek, we show a side to ourselves that is sinful. In sin, we lose the blessings that may have come our way. Often a harsh word at a person who responded how we thought they shouldn't may render one an enemy, sometimes a lifelong enemy. But if one is meek and humble and directs the conversation, we will often find out that the person didn't mean the comment, as it was said. By diffusing the situation with meekness, one can not only decrease tensions, but possibly, potentially, earn a new friend and keep their soul from sinning against God. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. What a statement. The body needs food and drink to survive and live on earth. Likewise, the spirit needs to be fed by God through his word. Your soul needs to be nourished like your body, only more so. Those that seek God with all their soul are considered hungry and thirsty for God. John wrote in his gospel, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you that true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. Then they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. 
And Jesus said unto them, I am that bread of life. He that comes to me shall not hunger, and he that believes in me shall never thirst. It is through Jesus Christ that the soul shall be satisfied. There is no other source of nourishment for the soul that satisfies like Jesus Christ. The soul is not just cared for and given a meal, but brought into deep communion with the Lord. In Him, in Jesus Christ, the soul finds nourishment. It finds encouragement. It finds rest from the troubles of life that would like nothing better than to starve your soul and watch it descend into the pit, gaunt and emaciated, longing for but one more meal to which it may garner one last bit of strength to fight off the ravages of the world and be restored to Jesus Christ. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The merciful, those who show to others what God has shown to them. Mercy. The merciful are the ones who show compassion toward their fellow man. They are tender of heart. They will show offenders pity and are quick to forgive their offenses. They don't need the highest penalty of the law to be satisfied, but rather being unwilling to punish others for their mistakes, seeking only to help the person see the transgression and have them restored to life. The merciful will be quick to show others love and not cruelty. They will show you the mind and attitude that God has shown us while we were yet still sinners. Instead of seeking to make you pay the price of your guilt, he set his son to die upon the cross so you, in God's mercy, in his mercy, could be reconciled unto him. Those that are merciful, showing others mercy, will themselves obtain mercy. The merciful will be shown the mercy they showed to others at the judgment seat of Christ. It is here before the judge of the living and the dead. The merciful will be shown the grace and eternity that they showed humanity in life. Before Christ, they will not cry as a publican as to how great a person they are, how often they did great and mighty things, but rather, before Jesus Christ, they will stand and say, Show me mercy, Lord, as I have shown others mercy. I am a sinner saved by grace. The grace and mercy shown by you upon that cross. The same mercy have I tried to show to others in my life. Forgive me, Lord, of my trespasses, and show me your mercy once again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. True Christianity lies within the heart of man, a heart transformed by God, washed clean by the blood of Christ, washed white as snow, cleansed from all wickedness. Those pure in heart will fight to be unstained by the wicked world we live in not seeking after riches or worldly gain, in a sense, but unashamedly seeking after a holy and righteous God, seeking to step away from those things that destroy the soul and hold fast to the cross of Christ. Pure of heart, pure in thought, pure in affections that are given freely to Christ, so he can use them as his ambassador to this lost, unsaved, and perishing world we find ourselves immersed in. Should we not all say, as the psalmist did, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It is the pure of heart, 
not those that appear pure on the outside that will see Jesus Christ in all his glory. Did not Jesus chastise the Pharisees for being like whitewashed tombs, being pure on the outside yet full of rot and decay? Did he not compare them to a cup that was only washed on the outside where the inside was left dirty? Those who are pure in heart will be those who have been cleansed from the inside out, leaving nothing of this world on the inside, but living holy and purely to glorify God. And because of that, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Peacemakers have a peaceful disposition. They love peace, they desire peace, and they delight in peace. Peace is their element that they thrive in. These will be the ones who will promote peace within the world. Why fight and argue, they will say. Let's sit and talk and find a common ground upon which to discuss our issues. We may indeed come together as enemies of one another, but we may well walk out as friends, as allies, maybe even brothers and sisters in Christ. Those that come to bring peace are often called names, spit upon, treated in an unkind manner, yet they take the blows, the spitting, the mocking, just as Jesus Christ did on his way to the cross. Knowing if people get the anger and hatred out of their systems and calmer heads prevail, there will be a better chance for peace. A peace that can bring the violent, the wicked, the sinner face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ, showing them their need for a savior and their need to seek the peace that is found only in Jesus Christ. These peacemakers will reflect the character of the Heavenly Father. They will show others one who is walking very closely with God, having been adopted into the family of God, who enjoy all of the privileges, the obligations to serve Him, and the inheritance rights due those children of God. This shall be the reward of the peacemakers, to be children of the Most High, and as such, live in the freedom that comes from being God's child. The freedom that comes through the covenant relationship with God and the unashamed devotion to a life lived as a child of His. For even if one seeks to live in peace with others, sadly, the peacemaker will have to deal with the peace breakers. And when the peace breakers come, Jesus said this, Blessed are they which suffer persecution for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution because of one's faith can come in many forms. It can range from name-calling to losing a promotion at work because you won't go against your faith to further the company. It may be a physical or mental assault that leaves you broken in mind, broken in body, but alive in the spirit knowing that God is there in your persecution. Persecution has run the gamut against believers throughout time. It has been so little as a name being called to the death of a believer who would not deny Christ and worship another God in order to live. Rather they say, I fear not what can destroy the body on earth, but rather I fear that which can destroy the body and soul in hell. Do as you must, for I will not turn my back on Jesus Christ as he did not turn his back over ever on me. Echoing the words of Polycarp as he faced a martyr's death, 
Eighty and six years have I served Christ. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for danning me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. It was here that Polycarp would be killed for his devotion, for his faith in Jesus. They decided that he would face the martyr's fire and they could not keep the fire lit. No matter how hard they tried, they could not get the fire lit, so they could not send Polycarp to a martyr's death. When they finally did get some flame, it could not consume his body. And he wasn't dying fast enough for them, so they decided to stab Polycarp. And in the Lord's grace, they stabbed him, and the blood that ran from Polycarp's body as he entered glory put the flames of the would-be persecutors out. Remember, this is not the manner of suffering. It's not the manner of suffering that makes the martyr, but rather it's the cause of Christ. If you're ever persecuted, consider it an honor to be counted as one that's called upon to stand firm in your faith and defend the cause of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. Don't be hesitant, for the reward of the martyr is an eternity with the very one they sought to defend. Those who suffer persecution shall see the kingdom of heaven. It is their recompense for fighting the battle for their faith. It is their reward for not denying Christ before men. As Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. When confronted as a martyr, you will have two choices. Confess Jesus Christ or deny him. There's not going to be a middle ground. There's not going to be a center lane by which you can pass go past all of the accidents and detainments and slide into your destination unharmed or unprovoked. If you confess Jesus Christ before men, persecution will come. But this persecution is not without reward. For Jesus continues, Blessed shall ye be when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake falsely. Blessed you shall be when those that hate Christ charge you with the fault of being a believer. Let me repeat that. Blessed you shall be when those that hate Christ charge you with the fault of being a believer. Oh, what a blessed thing it is when your life is so much different from the world that the world hates you. They have no idea why you're different because they've not tasted the goodness of God and the cross of Christ. They at first wonder why you're so different. And then they seem uneasy. And it's not until you won't join them in your their behavior that they begin to hold you in contempt. And as you hold faster to Christ, they will become increasingly more hostile toward you as the conviction of sin intensifies. 
then like high school bullies, the persecution will start. This persecution can and will take many forms. You must break from Jesus Christ or be broken, they'll tell you. You must step away from Christ or we're going to step all over you. When the world sees it cannot break you, the only thing that they have left is to bear false witness against you, an evil false witness. This was the pattern of the cross. As Jesus Christ preached against the Pharisees and Sadducees, they held him in contempt. They reviled him. When he would not stop preaching against their evil worldly actions and unsaved souls, they persecuted him, beating him, mocking him, spitting on him, until finally they nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. Even as Jesus hung, between heaven and earth on that cross, they continued to say all manner of things against him. And they, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroys the temple and builds it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the high priest, mocking him with the scribes and elders and Pharisees, said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and then we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And if we take a break in here just for a second, go back to his multitudes that were following Jesus multitudes they followed him from this mountain all the way to the cross they seen healings they seen people that were crippled stand up and walk they seen exposition of the scriptures like they'd never seen before and yet it come down to the very fact that they wanted Jesus to take himself down off the cross and then they would believe in him. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus said these things I command you that ye love one another. If the world hates you you know that it hated me before you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things, will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they have not known him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they should not have had sin. But now have they no cloak for their sin. He that hates me hates my father also. If I had not done works among them, which none other man did, they had not sin. But now they have both seen and have hated both me and my father. 
But it is that the world, the word might be fulfilled, that it is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. And if you stand up for Christ, if you go out and show your Christianity, I will tell you this. They're going to hate you too without a cause. To this Jesus said, Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward shall be great. You may get through this life without persecution. If you do, what a blessing. To those who will be or have been reviled, persecuted, had their name drugged through the mud for the sake of the gospel, rejoice. And I do not say that lightly. Rejoice. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. For here we've come to the end of the Beatitudes, the blessed. We've taken an in-depth look into them. We've seen that those people who are poor in spirit, those that mourn, those that are meek, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those that are pure in heart, those that are peacemakers, and those that suffer persecution, all have the reward coming. Stay the course, brothers and sisters. Keep fighting the fight of faith. You may lose ground in some battles and win others, but know that the reward for your perseverance is coming. One day, you shall fight that final battle. You may be advanced in years, you may be young in spirit, but one day the final battle will come. One day, that final battle will be fought. And as you step through the adversary, you'll be standing face to face with Jesus Christ. Be the Christian the world hates you to be. Be the Christian that stands for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be the Christian that when the final battle is done and you pass from this earth a battle-worn and tired soldier of the cross of Christ, having fought the good fight, being able to be numbered among the blessed, the Lord Jesus Christ will look you dead in the eye and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.